All right, and now I'm going to read our scripture for the day, which is Psalm 120. It's a nice, short, and sweet one. Actually, I don't know if it's sweet. We're about to find out. Uh, it's on page 516 in the Red Pew Bible, if you're using that. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. It's the word of the Lord. All right, thank you guys. Um, and thank you, Myra, again for sharing your story with us. We love uh, hearing from people in our community and what God has been doing in their lives. And I think that story sets us up really well for uh, where we're going to be going this morning um, in this psalm. So <clears throat> before we get into that, though, um, I want to give you guys just a, a quick update and then say a word of thanks about the uh, sojourn team uh, that was here about a month ago. I don't know if you remember this, uh, maybe it was just a blip on your radar, but we had a team from uh, Boston and Providence here at the beginning of March, uh, 30 plus college students and staff that were here to, uh, to serve and to learn, and uh, many of you participated in that in a variety of ways, some, uh, some small and some bigger. Um, but I wanted to tell you a little bit about, uh, about what they got to do, and then... Um, uh, again, just to sort of say thank you for your, your help and all that. So while they were here, they had a variety of different experiences, learning experiences. They spent some time with uh, 1951 Coffee and some of our other partners and uh, were really, I think, blessed by uh, the things that they got to experience and learn while they were here. Um, they also were able to do some things that were really a blessing to us. They uh, hacked the garden. <clears throat> we have a a garden space behind the gym that has become a jungle with all of the rain that we've had this year. So they cleaned that up. Uh, they hauled off a bunch of junk to the Goodwill. They also painted some, uh, some of our rooms. And in particular, my favorite thing that they did, um, you guys have probably heard this by now, but Grace Cooper, who has been serving as our uh, children's ministry director part-time for a while now, is coming on with us full-time this summer. Yes, that is definitely something to cheer about. And uh, she has an office downstairs that is uh, like a dungeon. And so they painted that room and they did this mural that you can sort of see in that picture there and, and sort of spruce that up and hopefully that will be a good gift for Grace as she transitions into a full-time uh, uh, staff person here at Regen. So they did some good work for us. They learned a bunch of things. It was great to have them around. The energy that they brought was, uh, was really cool. And then probably the biggest thing for me anyway was just seeing all the different ways that you guys participated in making that uh, a success, whether that was uh, something as simple as letting them borrow a sleeping bag, which by the way, still have a few of those in my office. So if you are missing a sleeping bag, come pick that up. Um, whether it was that or, or donating food for lunch or providing a dinner, these guys ate so well. They, like that, they just were raving about that all week. Our church knows how to do food really well. 
Um, and so again, whatever it was, or even just praying for them while they were here, I, I just want to say thank you for that. You guys did a, a, an amazing job. They were talking for the whole time about the hospitality they experienced here. And again, I think it's a huge testament to, uh, to our church, the way that we are able to open ourselves up to people coming in from, from somewhere else. So thank you for doing that. Um, a couple of cool stories. Uh, one of the students on the trip did make a decision to follow Jesus. Um, another one started praying for the first time. And several of them were like, is there a church like that in Boston? Because if there is, I want to go to that church. And that's always really encouraging to me to hear things like that. So um, a lot of great things for them to take from their time here. And again, I'm really grateful for all the ways that you guys participated in that. So just a quick update on that. Now let's, let's pray. And then we're going to spend some time talking about the Psalms and Psalm 120 in particular. So bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for the ways that you use people, you use your church um, to uh, be a blessing to other people, even all the way across the country. And uh, we're grateful for the, the stories that came out of Sojourn's time here with us. Thank you for the things they were able to get done for us, but more importantly for the life transformation uh, that took place as a result. Help us to continue to be uh, hospitable, uh, whether it's to each other, as Myra was just talking about, or even to people coming from, uh, from far away to do good work, whatever that, whatever that is, God. Help us to continue to be a church that opens our doors and opens our hearts to people. Now as we turn our attention to your word, God, speak to us this morning. May we be attentive and soft-hearted, May our eyes be open um, and our ears open to what you're speaking to us today. Help us to take whatever step uh, you are calling us to take this morning. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start this morning with a, with a word that we use a lot in church and not really in very many other places. That word is discipleship. Uh, again, if you've been in church for a while, you, you've probably heard this term come up from time to time. Maybe you've heard it come up a lot. But outside of the church, this is not a word or a term that is really used, right? Do you ever hear anybody talking about discipleship outside of church? Now, the interesting thing about that is discipleship is actually happening all the time. Whatever context you are in, whatever setting you are a part of, it is happening all the time. Because to be a disciple is simply to be formed into a way of life. Discipleship is being formed into a way of life. And there's a lot of different ways of doing life. We, uh, we like to celebrate that in the Bay Area, right? All the different ways that, that we can live. And the reality is, whether we're intentional about it or not, whether we're doing it on purpose or not, we're constantly being formed by something. And the thing that tends to form us the most, the place where we are, I think, most deeply formed is, is in the relationships that we have, right? The people that we are around and, and, and spend a lot of time with. When I was in college, I played a lot of ultimate frisbee. This is not because I woke up one day as a 19-year-old and I was like, I have this big void in my life that can only be filled by ultimate frisbee. Right, that was not the conversation that I had. But I was a part of a group of people. I was getting to know people. I was in relationship with people who were passionate about Ultimate Frisbee, who played every Friday, who invited me to come play with them. And so I started to play Ultimate Frisbee every Friday and then oftentimes other, other moments during the week. 
you could say that I was discipled into the way of ultimate Frisbee by the community that I was a part of. When we lived in, in Boston, I was working with a team of people who a lot of them would ride their bikes to work or to, you know, just around town. That was the way that they commuted as long as the weather permitted, which meant it was like three months out of the year. Um, but anyway, that was, that was how they got around town. And so I, I had a bike and I started doing that and I got like a nice helmet and I got a messenger bag and I started rolling my leg, my pant leg up, you know, like, like a cool bike hipster person. And that's, that's like, I just sort of grew into that. And I was, you could say again, I was discipled into the way of biking as a primary form of commuting. When we moved here to Oakland, um, it, this, this discipleship process took approximately two days. But I was, uh, I was introduced into the way of third wave coffee. And coming from Boston, there's really two options. There's Starbucks and there's Dunkin' Donuts. And if you've ever been there, you know that it's like four to one. There's like four Dunkin's for every one Starbucks. If you've ever had Dunkin' Donuts coffee, it's essentially a cup of sugar with some coffee like mixed in there and maybe some cream. <laughs> it's so gross. It's so gross. So anyway, that was a pretty quick conversion, but I was discipled into the way of third wave coffee here in Oakland. The whole point of these silly stories is simply to say our communities form us and shape us. Discipleship is always happening to us, whether we are intentional about it or not. So this invitation of Jesus to come follow him, to be his disciple, is in part an invitation to be very clear, very intentional about what is going to shape us about what we're going to allow to form us. I love Myra's story because she's so purposeful in finding a community and not just a place to, to worship or to sit on Sunday morning, right? But she talked a lot about wanting a group of people to walk through life with. She was very purposeful and intentional about that and I think that's a very significant part of this process. So where we're going now with, with the Psalms series is into this question, the heart of this question. What or who is discipling you? What are you being discipled by? Are you being discipled into the way of technology, the way of, of self as sort of the ultimate authority of life? Are you being discipled into the way of career achievement, the way of family, the way of culture, or the way... Of Jesus. Now, I've had a couple of people ask me, are you going to preach through the whole book of Psalms? Which if you know anything about Psalms, it's 150 things, right? So that's, that would be like, I don't know, here, that'd be like a 20-year project for me. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not preaching all the way through the book of Psalms. We've spent a little bit of time in this. I think we've seen five so far, and they're from the earlier part of the book. And that was all about giving us a, a taste, a flavor of what the Psalms are all about. And so now what we're going to do is turn our attention to a specific subset. And I'll talk more about this in just a minute. But Psalm 120 through 134 is a, is a particular subsection of the book. 
We've seen so far the Psalms are this collection of songs and poems that God's people have been using for thousands of years to give voice to the experience of being human. And in particular, the experience of relating to God and to other people. And we've seen again and again, this is the the fundamental lesson of the Psalms, is that as we relate to God, there's nothing that we experience that we cannot bring into that conversation. There's nothing too big or too ugly or too whatever to be brought to God. It's all part of the conversation. So we're jumping to Psalm 120, and a clue as to what's going on in this subsection comes in the title. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but sometimes... Uh, there's this little uh, uh, title at the beginning of the psalm before you get to the actual text. Sometimes it just is to tell you who the author is. Psalm 50 says, a psalm of Asaph. Okay, just a little bit of like insight into who wrote that particular psalm. Other times there's instructions like Psalm 53 where it says, to the choir master according to Mahalath, a mascal of David. And you guys all understand what those terms mean, so I don't need to explain that. Uh, no one knows what that means, by the way, so don't feel bad about that. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of, of debate about that. Probably has something to do with, with music, and so maybe Jane can explain it to you later. <laughs> but in Psalm 120 and the Psalms that follow, we get a title that, that is actually uh, very clear and that we know quite a bit about. It says, this is a song of ascents. A song of ascents. So Psalm 120 to 134, it's this smaller subsection in the larger book of psalms and this is a set of 15 songs that hebrew pilgrims would have sung together as they made a journey to jerusalem and they would do this a good hebrew would do this three times a year for the big festivals passover pentecost and tabernacles they would sing these songs as they ascended walked up the hill to the city of Jerusalem where the temple was. So a couple things about this journey. These were journeys that were uh, embarked upon with great intention. This was an intentional journey. You didn't just wake up one morning and decide, hey, I think I'm going to go to Jerusalem. You had to know when these festivals were coming in the calendar year. You had to decide you were going to go. You had to prepare for the journey. And then, of course, you had to actually go. You had to actually make the trek. So it was an intentional journey. It was also a journey that was done in community. This was not something you would do by yourself. You would not have seen a solo pilgrim hiking up the hill to Jerusalem singing these songs on their own. It was always done in community. Families went together. Families would connect to extended family. Villages would connect with other villages. And ultimately, tribes would connect with other tribes. All these groups together making their way up the hill to Jerusalem. Massive group of people singing these songs together. Now this is really important because in our modern conversation about discipleship, most of the conversation is around the individual. And what am I doing personally to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus? This is not how the Hebrews did it or thought about it. This is certainly not how Jesus did it. When you look at the stories of Jesus, you see that there were five primary contexts where discipleship happens. 
The first was in these very public settings. Jesus would be speaking or, or teaching a crowd. Matthew 5.1, Jesus sees this crowd of people and he stands up on this mountainside and begins to teach. Now there's another public setting that was a little bit, little bit more intimate. We can call this the social setting. We see Jesus going to weddings. He goes to parties. He's hanging out you know, in town with, with groups of people and something will happen or he'll say something or he'll do a miracle and it becomes this teachable moment for people. There's the interpersonal level. Myra talked about this in her, in her story just now, right? Jesus and the Twelve. It was Jesus and his home group, right? His small group. He spent a lot of time with those guys, and that's where a lot of his discipleship happened. There's an even more intimate level, though, within that. He had three guys, Peter, James, and John, that he spent more time with. We might call this the transparent context. And those three got to see things uh, that some of the other disciples didn't get to see. A couple of weeks ago in our study in Mark, we, we looked at the transfiguration. Those three got to see that. And then finally, there is the personal level. We do see Jesus going off by himself to pray and to spend time with his Father. But if you weight all of those equally, that's 80% of discipleship that happens in the context of relating to other people. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to spend 80% of our time with other people. All the introverts said amen, right? <laughs> the point here is, is that far too often when we talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it's about that personal level, right? And we forget about these other four contexts. So this was an intentional journey back to the pilgrims making their way up to Jerusalem. It was an intentional journey. It was a communal journey. And then it was also a spiritual journey. Spiritual for them, and then this idea of life as a journey is, is picked up on and used by authors all throughout Scripture. Just one example here, Philippians 3, we read, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press on towards the upward call of God. This Godward life is the ultimate journey that we are all invited to take. So why spend some time in, in these psalms if we want to be disciples of Jesus? Well, I think they are a very good guide for those of us who want to take this spiritual journey. For those of us who want to intentionally be formed as a disciple of Jesus in a community of Jesus followers. So let's take a, a moment and look a little bit at this particular psalm, Psalm 120. Uh, not, a, not that sweet, right? It kind of starts off on this ominous note. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Now, <clears throat> back in the day, allow me to be a, an old man for a moment, okay? Back in the day, we, uh, we would do this thing where we would make a mixtape. And this is where you would take songs, and you would, you would record them onto a tape, and then later on, there was these things called CDs. And so you could do like a mixed CD. But I, I, I'm of the generation that did an actual tape. And it had like, you know, like if it ever got um, unwound, it was all this, all this stuff. And you had to like wind it back up. And, and that was a tape, okay, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> 
Now, the mixtape was a great way to tell somebody about yourself. It was a, a sort of a form of self-expression. And there, was a, there is an art and a science to making a great mixtape. Now, fundamental to this science, this art, is you have to nail track one. Okay? You've got to nail track one. Some people, like, some people are feeling this. That's great. <laughs> The, the reason for this is, track one says a lot about this is who I am, and this is the kind of music that I like, and you can, you can trust this tape. Like, you don't need to go skipping around, fast-forwarding through anything. Like, you're going to want to hear all the songs. You're going to want to hear what this thing has to say. Now, if you think about the Psalms of Ascent as a mixtape, this is not a great way to start. This is not a good track one. This is like a sad, weepy acoustic song right out of the gate. Okay, you got to save that one for later. You don't start off with that one. So the question here is why does the psalmist or why do the songs of ascent begin with this? In my distress, I call out to the Lord. Well, the next couple of verses give us some clues to this. We see that the root of the distress is what we might call a culture of lies. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. Now, as we've said, whether we've chosen it or not, we're all being discipled by something, by some way of life. And there's a lot of uh, good and beautiful things in our world. But we are constantly bombarded by this culture of lies. I've talked about this before in a couple of sermons, but one of the fascinating things about this last year is, and all the different events and the election and all this stuff is that more people now believe that we are on, on sort of this downward trend, right? There's this myth in our culture that everything is just going to keep getting better and better and better. We've been fed this for many years, right, that, that we're going to get more... Uh, we're going to get healthier and have better education and we'll make more money and everything's just going to get better, this myth of endless progress. And so in a strange way, the gift of the last year is that that lie's been punctured a little bit. And more, again, more people now believe that we're actually on a downward trend than, than upward. Jesus' followers know that this Godward journey is good, but it is not easy. It is down, right? It's not up. Jesus says things like the last will be first, the greatest is the one who serves. All these sorts of things that are so totally upside down to what we're normally told how the world is supposed to work. It's because we are immersed, we're bombarded by this culture of lies. The lie that we have to be physically beautiful to be loved. The lie that money will buy us happiness. The lie that my people are to be protected above all others. The lie that technology will save us. The lie that the most important goal in life is to be comfortable. The list goes on and on and on. Lord, save us. Deliver us from lying lips. Now verses 5 and 6 are interesting. They continue to build on this, uh, on this sense of distress, this sense of... of um, uh, being immersed in this, in this culture. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. Now we know a couple of things about these two places that are mentioned here. Meshech, 
was a nomadic tribe, and they go all the way back to Genesis chapter 10. They descended from Japheth, and they roamed parts of Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, so this would have been you know, to the north of Jerusalem. Kedar was also a nomadic tribe, descendants of Abraham through Ishmael. You can see a little bit about them in Genesis 25. They would have roamed the Arabian deserts to the south and east of Palestine. Now there's a lot of debate among scholars about what these locations mean. Some argue that they're literal. These are sort of representing how far people would travel to get to Jerusalem for one of these big three festivals. Others argue that these locations represent important parts. They're, they're, they're representative of important moments in Israel's history. Meshech represents uh, and would be uh, similar to the area of Mesopotamia, the land that Abraham was called to leave when God said, uh, I want you to leave this land and your family. I'm going to show you a new place. Kedar represented Egypt where the people were in slavery for over 400 years and God rescues them in this exodus moment. Both cases, God moves them from a place to what is perceived to be a better place. So whether literal or metaphorical, the idea here is that Meshach and Kedar are places you don't want to be. Right? And there's somewhere better out there. They're, these places are far from Jerusalem, far from God's presence. And they are engaged in a way of life that was not God's way. So I think this, this helps uh, give us a sense for why the songs begin here on this somewhat down note. What Psalm 120 is saying is the, f- the first step in this Godward journey is recognizing I'm not in a good place. I'm not in a good place. Meshach and Kedar stand-ins for that, that moment, that realization that this place that I'm in, whether it's, it's literal or metaphorical, is not good. I'm, I'm immersed in this culture of lies and I need to get out. I want to get out. The Chinese philosopher Mencius says, before a man can do things, there must be things he will not do. And this sentiment is captured in the good old biblical term, repentance. We must be fed up with the ways of the world in order to set out on the way of Jesus. This is where the Psalms of Ascent say we must start. It's where Jesus started as well. We've seen this in our study in Mark. Mark chapter 1, after John was arrested, remember John is Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, whose role was to prepare the way for Jesus. He's arrested. Jesus bursts onto the scene proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Where does Jesus begin with repentance? Where does this pilgrimage, this Godward life begin? It begins with repentance. Now, too often when we hear the word repentance, we, we think about uh, self-condemnation or self-castigation, listing, you know, creating this big list of all the things that we've done wrong. But the Hebrew word for repentance that would have captured the worldview that Jesus was speaking into 
is the word teshuva. Everybody say teshuva. Teshuva. Good. Now this word means to return. And Hebrew was a, is a visual language, and so it would have, been, it would have created a picture in, in people's minds. And the picture you need to have here is of, uh, is of turning around. This idea of I'm heading in a particular direction, and, and this place that I'm in, this Meshach, this Kadar, is not a good place. And so I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to head in a new direction. This spiritual journey, this Godward life, the path of intentional discipleship in the way of Jesus must start with saying no first. And that's why they, that's why they made this journey to Jerusalem so many times. It was a reminder of this. It was a teshuva moment, a repentance moment. Now here's the crazy thing. Okay? Jesus didn't just talk about this. He actually did this. And you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute. Jesus is like the perfect, sinless son of God. What did he need to repent of? And that's a good thought. You're right. (laughs) But watch this. In the Gospel of Luke, we read that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that phrase there, set his face, this is a determined, resolute decision that Jesus is making. And what he's doing here is he is saying no to all the other options that are available to him. No to traditional forms of power and kingdom. No to popularity and adulation. He's turning his face to Jerusalem to head up that hill into the city so that he can die. So that he can then say yes to the cross, to suffering and death, but also yes to resurrection and restoration, and reconciliation. Today is Palm Sunday, typically a celebratory day in the church calendar for good reason. We remember today Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. You can see this in Luke 19. It takes him 10 chapters to go from that moment of setting his face, determining to go to Jerusalem, saying no to all these other options, and then entering the city. It's a triumphant moment, but it's also the culmination of this decision. His moment of teshuva, turning himself away from other options so that he can fulfill the option, the mission that he came for. This is great news. This is the gospel that we celebrate each week when we gather here each week as we take communion together. The reality that Jesus said no to all of these other ways and yes to the cross. Making it possible for us to have peace with him and with each other. Now the final verse of this psalm could even be Jesus' own words. I am for peace, but when, when I speak, they are for war. That brings us all the way back, I think, to verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. If we say no to Meshach and Kedar, no to the culture of violence and lies, we also must say yes to God and yes to peace. These bookend verses represent that yes. Which leads us to two final thoughts on repentance. First, repentance is a decision, not an emotion. 
Repentance is not about feeling bad. Now, feeling bad may be part of the process. It may be the thing that wakes you up to the reality, I'm not in a good place. I'm stuck in a meshik or a kadar, and I need to get out. But that feeling is not the repentance. Back to verse 1, the distress is not the repentance. The call to the Lord is the repentance. It's that decision to turn and move in a new direction. And in particular, to move towards God. Now the second thing is repentance. The result of repentance is peace. It's not easy saying no Repenting is a kind of death. But it is a death that leads to life. Lose your life and you will find it, Jesus says. This new life is a life of peace, what the Old Testament writers call shalom. And we've talked about shalom before, but just a quick reminder. Shalom is right relationship with God and with people. It is the way that God always intended his creation to function. It is the goodness that he declared over the world when he was done creating. And it's the better place. It is the place he still calls us to inhabit. Psalm 18, he brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. God does not want you to languish in a meshik or a kadar. He does not want you to languish there. So one quick question is, are you in a good place? Are you in a spacious place? Or is there something that you need to be rescued from, something you need to be delivered from, whether that's financial trouble or relational issues, depression, loneliness, addiction, whatever it might be, is there something you need to be rescued from? The first step is repentance, is teshuva, turning and heading in a new direction. And so our last question is simply, what turn do you need to make today? Maybe it's as simple as turning to God for the first time. And if you want to talk more about that, if you want to pray with someone about that, I'll be up here in the front and uh, we would love to talk uh, with you and pray with you about that. Maybe it's something else, though. Maybe it involves forgiveness, making peace with someone in your life, letting go of a grudge. What would it look like to make a turn towards that person? Maybe it simply involves asking for help with whatever it is that you are struggling with. What does it look like for you to take a turn towards seeking help? God wants to rescue you. He rescued me because he delighted in me. That's God's heart. He wants to save us from our meshiks and our kadars, to bring us to a good place, to a spacious place, a place of peace with him and with each other. And so again, what turn do you need to make this morning? Let's pray. Father, in a lot of ways, this is an, uh, an, an odd song 
to start off with, to start off this, this journey. And yet, it's where Jesus says we need to start. It's where Scripture says we need to start over and over again with saying no to all the other ways of life that are available to us and saying yes to you. So God, I, I pray now for each and every one of us here this morning that we would be able to take some time to really sort through that. To think about what is forming us, what is shaping us, what are we being discipled by? Is it by some other way? Is it by this culture of lies? Are we stuck in a meshik or a kadar? Or are we pursuing you? Are we being formed by you? God, as we examine that and think through that, if, if we need to take a turn, if we need to repent of something, give us the courage to do that and to move in a new direction today. So wherever we are this morning, God, I pray that you would be speaking to us and opening our eyes to the ways that we maybe have been formed by a different voice, a different story. And again, give us the courage to say yes to you and to move in that direction. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.